Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. This is part two of my interview with Professor Kara Cooney of UCLA. Having previously discussed ancient funerary economics, coffins and coffin making, we now turn to the question of Queen Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut had a long legacy and impacted the royal household of Egypt in many ways. As part of our conversation, Professor Cooney and I dove into that period and what it tells us about royal power during the 18th dynasty of Egypt. So, moving away now from the uh, 19th to 22nd dynasties, I'd like to talk about Hatshepsut specifically. Mm-hmm. So in 2014, you published The Woman Who Would Be King, which was a sort of popular biography of Hatshepsut and her times. At the very basic level, what inspired you to write a narrative history of that ruler in particular? I didn't want to write a narrative history of that ruler in particular. I didn't want to at all. Um, okay, I'll delete the question. No, no, no. It's um, no, no, no. It's uh, but it's so funny, isn't it? How um, and then, well, I didn't until I did. So when mm. Hatshepsut keeps finding me, she keeps sneaking up behind me, tapping me on mm. the, just pestering me like, "You've got to tell my story. You've got to do this." I am not looking for Hatshepsut, but she is certainly looking for me, and I know this <laughs> because in 2005, when I found myself between jobs, I was approached by a producer to do a Discovery Channel television show on Hatshepsut. Mm. I'm like, well, I don't really know anything. It's not my period. You know, I do 19th and 20th, but I suppose, you know, I could get a free trip to Egypt and do this thing on Hatshepsut. It sounds like it could be fun. And so Mm. I did this thing and it ended up being still to this day, one of Discovery Channel's most popular shows, not because of me, but because of Zahi and the tooth and they identified identified the mummy and all of these things. But mm. it made me think about what we know about Hatshepsut and what we don't know about Hatshepsut in a very interesting way. And because of that television show, I was then somehow colored as a Hatshepsut expert, which is rather laughable. And for any academic who knows how mm. academics work and how we put ourselves in these little boxes, um, even more laughable. And so when a lit agent approached me and he said, why don't you write a book about Hatshepsut. I immediately, without a beat, said, I can't write a book about Hatshepsut. And he said, why ever not? And I said, well, she's 18th dynasty and I do the 19th and 20th. And he mm. he's like, really, Kara, wouldn't you want to write a book about female power? And then he had me. Then I was mm. like, oh, okay, female power. 
And I didn't think about it then in 2000. And when did this book come out? 2008? No, well, 2000. I don't even know. 11? Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. 12, 2012. Um, (laughs) This book comes out in 2012. I don't think I understood that I thought in terms of systems at that time. I was just intuitively doing it. And so approaching that book from my systematic or systemic approach was uh, very useful because then I, I took this woman and I wrote a biography from cradle to grave and beyond. And I tried to make it as personal as I possibly could, as much about her decision-making within her world as I possibly could, which no one tried to do and is not an easy thing to do um, with as much hypothetical um, uh, construction of my own, but based on systems. What is this military system? What is this political system? Who are the actors in it? What are the most likely reactions of people in that in that kind of situation? How are people most likely to respond to this or that? And I ended up creating a much more compelling narrative than I thought I could and a much more personal narrative than I thought I could. And that book for me is very much about individuals being stuck in a system. What is the power of the individual to change a system, to recognize a system, to see the pieces on a board and then to move them at their will. Most of us are cogs in a machine. Most of us can work very little upon the system in which we are were born, in which we find ourselves, and we have a hard time transcending beyond that. And there are a few people who can truly work upon the system, but they are still a product of that system. And so the Hatshepsut mm. book really helped me to, to see so many of the fallacies we have about this woman, she took power, she grasped power. That's mm. crazy. No one does, no one, not even Alexander the Great, not Hitler, not Trump, no, nobody is able to just go in and take power. You must have a foundation for that power. Mm. You must have people who want you to do that. You must have lieutenants and protectors. And so mm. when I started to see it in that way, it completely changed the narrative. From, from a narrative of female power that we adulate and say, look, women could do it to a more cynical view. And I think a more, uh, I don't know, fourth wave feminist view that that women are used as placeholders and used um, as leaders. And I could put Maggie Thatcher and Theresa May into these categories, but, but they're all there to serve a patriarchal system that is not moving their own individual female suits forward. And Hatshepsut is mm. the same. And so, so it's a tragedy. That book's a tragedy. When Women Ruled the World is also a tragedy. It is, it is about uh, females working on behalf of a system that serves them individually, but does not serve their sisterhood. And it explained to me through the lens of history, why there is no sisterhood, why we don't um, link ourselves together Um, Why we don't have a word for a woman who acts against the sisterhood. There's all kinds of words for an African-American who acts against his black people. But there's no word for a woman who screws over other women because she wants to get cute shoes from that guy. There's no word for that. And that's because Mm -hmm. there's no sisterhood. And if there's no sisterhood, that means the patriarchy truly is that strong. And I now see that world around me more clearly, around me now, Mm -hmm. because of Mm -hmm. that episode. So... I don't know if she's haunting me or what, 
but <laughs> but she's there constantly trying to get me to tell her stories. It's the third time I've, I've written about her or talked about her once the television show, then the biography. And then she comes back in When Women Ruled the World, of course. And the uh, mm. story keeps developing in my mind. Hmm. Naturally, that makes sense. So as a as a ruler, as a woman, as a product of her system and a person with some power to impact that system in various ways, what kinds of changes did the period of Hatshepsut's rule, however much you attribute it to her and however much you attribute it to the structure in which she moves, what kinds of changes did Hatshepsut effect or prompt in the economic and social structure of Egypt's royal household? This is a big question. I'm going to try to hit this from two different points. Um, okay. no, number one, I'm going to hit it in terms of royal justification. How is the king mm. chosen? Um, how does the king justify their power? And number two, I will hit it in terms of social foundations. Let's start with mm. the latter. So you can see it in any museum you go to. You can see it on the ground in Egypt that as soon as Hatshepsut takes power, there is an explosion of production in private things of display. Tombs, statues, better coffins, it's there. It's very mm -hmm. clear that she was a jobs creator, that the, the co-reign of Hatshepsut and Thomas III was a time period of wealth and expansion, mm -hmm. um, economic expansion, military expansion, but it was also a time period in which Hatshepsut has to give to get. So you could look at it and say, oh, Egypt is so wealthy and look at all of this. Um, isn't this wonderful? Or you could say, huh, isn't it interesting in the early 18th dynasty, this kind of display is, is um, consistently kept only to a very few families. Mm. And it, it's kept inside the, the royal household. As the 18th dynasty progresses, and particularly during the reign of when Hatshepsut takes over, as co-king, then everyone's got a nice tomb. Ineni has a nice tomb. You've got nice tombs amongst like um, Ahmose, the son of Abana, which now is being proven to be mostly decorated during that time period rather than earlier. Um, all of those tombs of El Kab seem to be decorated at the time period of Hatshepsut until it was the third, even though they're hearkening back to a 17th, 18th dynasty reality. Um, so, and that's um, uh, Davies. Um, who's who's proven that? Um, Vivian Davies. Vivian Davies, yes. And um, and I and I, I have to think of the reference for that. Mm, I but, need to I need to read that. Yeah, it's, it's, some episodes it's, to rewrite. Super interesting, right? Um, yeah. that, that he's able to prove that what you think is is a paheri is not something that he did himself during his own time, but something his um, uh, ancestor um, pre, um, the the is it ancestors? Descendants. descendants. Oh my God, thank you. That his descendants did after him. Um, and and gaining their own connection to that uh, patriarchal paterfamilias and, and that mm -hmm. play thereby. So it seems awesome on the face of it, but on the, but when you look at it through this lens, you see that the kingship has been forever weakened, that she has to get, mm -hmm. to get that she has to reward to keep her power. And that she, mm -hmm. beginning, and I set this up in the book, was probably a pawn 
a pawn of all of these elites who want to keep their money and actually want to use this time period of the king's vulnerability to grab more and to see what they can take. And they take this young girl, maybe 14, maybe 15, maybe 18, maybe 22. What did you know at 22? <laughs> and a woman, right? So they put her in there and it, however old she was. And all these elites are just taking, taking, taking. And there is more job creation during this time period, more titles being created, more professionalization, whatever you want to call it, during this time period than at any other. And it is... Um, According to some, like David Warburton, who wrote a book about Hatshepsut about 10 years ago, I think, it is the forever weakening of the 18th dynasty kingship, economically, socially. From, from this point on, the king has to please the people around him. And so then it takes something like Senenmut, and you, you can throw all of the were they lovers stuff out of the window. It doesn't matter. She needs new men as well as when she gets older, then when she starts to realize that she's a pawn and now she's moving along in a different way, she starts to look at this situation of all of these patricians taking stuff. And she's like, damn, this is not cool. I need to fix this. So now she needs to, to put to pit elites against elites. And she starts to elevate new men with no old connections to any of this these patricians. And give them new jobs, give them the same title. A patrician has this title and Senemut has the title. And this happens mm. with, with new man after new man. And she knows that they have to trust her and she can trust them because they don't have anyone else to answer to. And she's able to move her suit forward and become a different kind of ruler in that way. So there is a pushback, but, um, but the amount of enrichment of the elites started in her reign and of course continued. This isn't going to go away. Um, I can't put that genie back in the bottle and say, okay, you guys have to go back to keeping it all in the palace and no one's going to do that. These, these are his lieutenants. Um, now, the second thing that I think changes with the reign of Hatshepsut is that because the kingship is so weakened and because she is a regent for what may have been a toddler king, if that child was produced within the reign of Tutmos II, maybe it, maybe it was a seven-year-old king, whatever, the kid was young, right? If, hmm. if the kingship is so weakened and you have a regent who seems to have been handpicked by elites because, you know, she works for them in a way to keep that hmm. status quo, then a new system, religious system is set up to justify that king. And even when Hatshepsut gets some of her own back and is able to create these new men to push back against those patricians, she still has to say, the only reason I'm doing this is because my father, Amun Re, is asking me to do this. And so there is now a new oracular, prophetic, revelatory connection between the God and the king's creation. The king is mm. the one who knows that they have been chosen. The king announces this to, to his or her people. And it is now um, using ideological power in an irrevocable way to communicate to people you have to have me as your leader because the God said so. Now that hmm. seems it could, it's some people have published that as untruths as when Hatshepsut says these things, though no one ever seems to say that when it was the third says it. Um, so she's a liar. She's duplicitous. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it, when any King has to say that the God chose me, it means that somebody else out there is saying that they're not legitimate, that they shouldn't be King. 
that something's wrong, something's off. And remember, she's only the third ruler in her Thotmazid family. Moving, you know, if, whatever Amenhotep the first situation was, the reason he didn't have any children, if it's incest, I mean, he is the product of two full brother-sister marriages. It can't have been pretty. But whatever the, the reality of that situation, it was a move, a shift from one family lineage to another. And when mm. was the first moves in, it's it might have been an enfeebled kingship from the beginning. Like Amenem had the first of Dynasty 12 and he's assassinated. And then Senwasrit the first is constantly saying in, in a different way, you know, I am here as your savior. I'm meant to be here. It's it's this justification of kingship. And for for Hatshepsut in particular, when she starts to claim this revelation of the God with an oracle, the God marks her for power in front of the elite's eyes. It means she has to. It smacks of a real vulnerability that there is somebody to please. There is somebody to convince and religion is the best way to do it. And Tutmos the third follows suit with that. So if you read in his annals, his section, uh, the, the text de la jeunesse, as it is called, he is there saying that the God chose him as a nestling that all of the other boys were assembled and he, you know, the oracle went to him and then he flew up into the heavens and knew things that you can't possibly imagine. These are things mm. that a king before that didn't need to tell you. He was king. And, and I don't need to convince you of anything. I don't need the God on my side. I am the God. Remember, I'm the God. <laughs> so mm. um, you can see the vulnerability there for Hatshepsut's kingship, is it because she's a woman? Probably partly so. It's because the king before her was so young and she's working for him? Probably partly so. But it seems that the elites have been truly energized and invigorated in their power vis-a-vis -vis the king. And so there is an attempt to use religion. But the long-term repercussions mm. of that are brutal. Um, mm. It creates Akhenaten and whatever that is. Mm. And it will end up creating a empowerment of a military because Akhenaten can't get his military, his religious message reified in any other way. And he has to empower, but he has to empower a different elite. And then you see the pushback in which you have a, a military coup and a military kingship of, of ex-mercenaries with the Ramesses. So you can see it all working in a long-term scheme of things of, of how the system morphs its way it, with one, you know, one trick of fate, a king dies too early. That would be Tutmos II. A new dynasty is enfeebled. They, they do what they can, but the elites pounce and then the dominoes fall and those dominoes keep falling. There's pushback along the way, but you end up then with, with uh, military populism by the time you get to Ramses II. And that's, that's pretty hmm. interesting. The conversation continues after the break, but first we have to get that automated advertising out of the way. See you in a moment. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba -ba. 
Part 2. Having discussed Hatshepsut's impact on the royal household of Egypt, we now move into the greater concept of Egyptian royal power, and the relationship between a king, their courtiers, and the people of the country. So, in some respects, perhaps the period of Thutmose II and then Hatshepsut and Thutmose III sort of exposes, at least for us looking back, some of the the more negotiated elements of the Egyptian kingship, which, you know, probably were there as part of their society, but now are suddenly a lot more visible because other people are able to make their influence known in very in lasting ways, things that turn up on monuments and are recorded. We must never forget that we are dealing with, as Egyptologists, a an authoritarian regime that is constantly trying to veil its realpolitik from us. It is up to us to try to find any traces of that realpolitik possible and not drink the divine kingship Kool-Aid. Most of us just drink the Kool-Aid and take the data at face value and think it is irresponsible to try to circumstantially understand or hypothetically understand what may have happened behind the scenes. In my mm. opinion, it is incumbent upon all Egyptologists or anybody who studies any authoritarian regime or any regime of power to try to understand what, why one thing is revealed at one time and not at another time. And mm. one of the most mysterious things in all of the ancient Egyptian world is how a king was chosen. That's the way they want it, though. So we can talk about primogenitor, and some Egyptologists do. We can talk about oracles, and many Egyptologists do. But we actually have no idea how these backroom deals happened, who was whispering to whom, who was maybe assassinated or poisoned, who was, we have no idea. But mm. there's some inkling of it, and it would it's upon us to try to see more into that world rather than mm. not. We almost ironically have a responsibility to actually treat them as humans. Yes. Well, so many people, that's why ancient aliens exist. That's why all of these TV shows about the ancient Egyptians exist, in my opinion, is mm. to separate them from us, to see the magic and the mysteries. And then they're not human at all anymore. And um, mm. I remember the, I, when I wrote the book, The Woman Who Would Be King, I, I got a negative review from Christina Riggs in the Times Literary Supplement, which is, mm. Okay, yeah, I get a negative review. Everyone gets negative reviews. That's fine. But there's one sure. thing there that that speaks exactly to your question and that I have used as fuel ever since in this negative review. It's been very useful to me. So thank you, Christina Riggs, whether you meant to do this or not. But she called my book Universalist, that mm. I was removing myself from the particularist world of the ancient Egyptians at my peril, that it wasn't my place mm. to do so that I was being universalist in doing so and the irresponsible and that this was not the proper uh, thing that a historian should do. That essentially, I'm paraphrasing, one could find the, the review. But for me, I, you know, and you, it hurts that when you get these reviews or when you, but you think, and I, I don't mm -hmm. read reviews um, actually anymore, though maybe I should because this one has been so useful. But when I thought about it, I'm like, whoa. So I have to take the ancient Egyptians only at their word, only believe what they say. I can't compare them to us. It's like they're not humans. If I can't be mm. universalist, then I, I have no empathy for someone from Afghanistan because they wear a burqa and I wouldn't do that and or I don't have to. Mm. So, and I, I think it's a fallacy to think that the ancient world is so different from our world that we cannot compare it to today. I think that the ancient world 
is one of the best ways that we have of learning about what we live in today. And if we think that our knowledge of 250 years of American history, for example, is going to help us understand the future of America, that's ridiculous. You have to have a long durée perspective of a thousand years, at least 500 years. Um, we do it as Egyptologists. We should do it in, in uh, the world we live in today. But, but I really push back against people telling me that the ancient Egyptians were so different and that I can't do this, I shouldn't do this. Um, and it's actually, it's really energized me to, to keep going forward in what some people call popular work or trade work. I call it that myself, but the more that I do it, the more political it becomes and the more it's my key focus and, um, my reason for writing right now. It's that, uh, it's that tendency of perhaps some of us to not only buy into the myths of that the ancients put forward about themselves, but also to, in some respects, place ourselves on a pedestal. You know, how could we compare them to us? Because we are obviously so much better and more educated. When, when you really get down to it, human behavior is very much consistent with what we see in the past. Well, and hasn't this pandemic exposed some real modern exceptionalism? We talk, I talk about mm. American exceptionalism all the time, and the United States is being mm. exposed as the uh, country built on chattel slavery and social inequality now mm. better than any other time in its history. And let it be shown to itself and to the world what it was built upon, because it's dirty down there, and it's time to rethink it. I think there are many other countries that could have the same conversation about what their foundations are. But modernist exceptionalism is just as dangerous, because you think... Oh, okay, there's climate change, but you know, we're different. We have these brains. We're not really part of the world. And then you realize that you're an animal like all the other animals yeah. and that some weird virus that was in another animal can now come to you because guess what? You're an animal. And that even mm -hmm. though you're all modern and cool, your systems suck because they're the same systems mm -hmm. that every other human being has ever lived with since complex civilization existed. And it's not different. It may be more complicated, more messy, um, harder for us to see, but it is the same. The authoritarian regime, the veils they throw upon it, the ideological subterfuge, it is, they are all the same tricks that we use today. The uh, authoritarian personalities, the, the way that the rich keep what they have by saying that the poor need them because it will trickle down. All of these tricks are there in the ancient world for us mm. to see. Speak, when you were speaking before about negotiated power, Oh, you were speaking about uh, Hatshepsut's, Hatshepsut's place within the elites and the, the backroom dealings. It reminded me very strongly of the anthropologist Charles Tilley's theory, which to my mind doesn't get nearly enough recognition, which is that, you know, human states and the structures, the power structures of our societies really mimic in many ways that of organized crime. And oh, yeah. when you start digging into the, the structures of these households, you know, they're, ve they're very, very, very mafia-esque to the point that you could use mafia as a parallel study and probably find many fruitful observations. Can you send me that Tilly reference? I would love to read it because yes, absolutely. I use this. Um, I, I'm writing a book right now called recycling for death that is about the last 12 or so years of coffin reuse and Egypt, uh, Egyptian society in Thebes during the Bronze Age collapse. And 
mafia studies have been very, very useful to me. And I read a book that you would really like. I'll send you the reference. I think it's Gambetti. Um, that's all about how a mafia system works. And mm. it's been extraordinarily useful to apply to the Theban priesthood of Amun in this time period of crisis and mm. where power is coming from, how it's displayed, how it's reified um, economically, physically, or militarily. Um, it's uh, Mafia systems are useful. And then I can see that we look at the tomb robbery papyri of Dynasty 20, and instead mm. of seeing a pious priesthood stopping these aberrant activities, you see a mafia system in which punishment is being doled out to people who would dare go around the high priesthood mm. who's already systematically looting those tombs for their own regime. And so they have to go through this big show of putting people on trial when they're the ones doing it themselves. So mm. everyone is engaged in the same activity and it helps me to see how the poor are punished for those activities while the rich um, go get away with them with impunity. And like in the United States, when, you know, all the poor black people get arrested and put in prison for their whole life for crack cocaine and all the white men who are doing all of the cocaine in powder form, you know, get a light sentence and nothing ever happens to them. Or mm-hmm. somebody's stealing somebody in a shop, something in a shop here and they get put in jail, third strike, you're out, whatever our system does. And somebody can go on the stock market and do the same theft worse to millions of people and nothing will ever happen to them. And it's called- oh, They called, get a bonus. Yeah, it's called capitalism and it's fine. And that's yeah. how we reward the rich. These This skimming off of the top for uh, for those at the top of social hierarchies has been happening since civilization, whatever you want to call it, was formed. And it mm-hmm. would behoove us to look at these things more carefully through that lens. Absolutely. When, when people ask me casually, you know, how do I sometimes think about the pharaohs I think well probably if you're trying if you were a, a normal person then the best example you might find today is somewhere like North Korea where the 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 visible expression of that power versus what's actually going on behind the scenes is so difficult to penetrate that it's that's the closest analogy I can think of in the modern world is a state like that and then yeah, you get into right. the myths of you know yeah. how Kim Jong Un born on the mountainside and the gods were destined him for power, you think, well, yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about. It's funny that you say that because in my my class on divine kingship that I'm teaching right now to the poor 200 souls who have to watch me over Zoom, I just had a slide in which I have uh, Amenhotep III on one side, or Akhenaten, I can't remember, mm-hmm. which it doesn't really matter, and Kim Il-sung on the other. And behind Kim mm-hmm. Il-sung's head is this giant disc of the sun. And hmm. it's in Kim Il-sung, he renamed himself to be Kim of the sun. I believe that's it. And so he is the sun king. Louis XIV, he is the sun king. Amenhotep III, he is the dazzling yeah. disc. And and then Ramses II is the king of kings, and it just keeps going and going. Part three. Having discussed Hatshepsut's impact on Egyptian royal power and the nature of that power itself, we now move to our final question. Where is Hatshepsut's mummy? Is the body that is identified as her actually her? And how does a scholar like Professor Cooney approach this sort of question? So, last question about Hatshepsut, which you briefly mentioned earlier, but I wanted to get your professional opinion on it. The quote-unquote mummy of Hatshepsut in the Cairo Museum, identified supposedly from a tooth, 
what is your professional assessment of this the study and the uh, likely or the conclusion of that study? Do you think it is Hatshepsut or do you have doubts? And isn't it funny how we've just been talking about um, people veiling their uh, realpolitik and I feel the same way. About <laughs> the Hatshepsut mummy question is really difficult because there's just as much uh, veiling of the actual research process of identifying this mummy as there is in ancient Egypt when you're choosing the next king. So even though all of it was shown apparently in real time on television as Zahi Hawass was making the amazing discovery that the tooth fit the, the space in the head of the mummy or the molar tooth found in the canopic jar that said Hatshepsut fit into the space in the head exactly, I haven't seen that demonstrated in um, an article that I can consume and criticize. So I'm speaking from a lack of evidence. If that tooth really fits, I would love to see it and see how it does and get more information about that tooth. Wouldn't it be nice to do isotopic studies of that tooth and then compare it to the other tooth and see if it matches? Um, that would be interesting. But all in all, I go with uh, mummification experts who know a lot more than I do. And not being a bioarchaeologist myself, I understand that the brain was not removed in the mummy that was identified as being Hatshepsut's. And that seems mm -hmm. aberrant, what we know of other 18th dynasty royal mummies and 17th dynasty royal mummies, which we have, are preserved to yeah. us. So it seems strange that Hatshepsut, buried in state by Tutmos III, he finishes her temples, he treats her with respect, doesn't go after all of her stuff until a good two decades after why would he give her a shoddy burial? I think it's a cheap excuse to say, oh, she took his throne and he hated her and thus he didn't mummify her properly. No. And and then the other circumstantial evidence that suggests that it is not Hatshepsut is that she's way too old. And yes, there's a lot of disagreement about how old Hatshepsut was when she took power. But to take a woman who is um, potentially in her late 60s does not work for the timeline at our disposal. It does not work at all. And um, if she's going to be at her oldest, you know, 45, something like that, and that's to me pushing it. Um, I think she was younger. I err on the younger side for a variety of reasons. Um, I, I just don't think it fits. So, the, and there are other scholars who have gone through this point by point by point, why that body is not hers and why there are other better candidates. And so, then I, I'm compelled to ask, why do we care? What does it matter that we have the body of a king? What can you learn from the body of a king? Sometimes you can learn things that are fallacies that, that are repeated again and again, like that Thomas III, the Napoleon of Egypt, was short like Napoleon. And then they realized they didn't measure him properly, and he was really not short. And then everyone has to take that back. Or you come up with ideas that... Um, Tutmos the second had a weak heart and it was an enlarged heart. That's useful information. That's great. Super useful information that Ramses the third actually has the cut across his throat because we wouldn't have known uh, definitively that the guy was actually assassinated because they don't tell us that in the texts. So mm. a body can teach you some things. Um, the body of Tutankhamun still hasn't given us a cause of death for a man so young. And mm. it's, it, you know, it's interesting to me that this need to identify a body says as much about us needing to have that physical connection uh, as it does about Hatshepsut. It, you mm. know, so maybe she had cancer and diabetes and I, 
that's all we can really say. There's not a whole lot else that one could say from examining that body. Um, I would rather ask different research questions and go about this uh, analysis of the ancient world in a different way. Not that I don't use objects. I'm very object-centered, very physical in my, um, in my social history. I, I like to surround my social history with with things because people surround themselves with things. But in some ways, I'm like, so it could be her, it might not be her. I don't really care. I really don't. <laughs> I really don't care. And it's not, you know, it's something that people get all upset about. And they're going to argue and they should look at this body and that body. Um, might be like, so we might have Akhenaten. That's interesting. Might, and now it's been, you know, same deal. It's been definitively defined as Akhenaten's body. It, it's useful for me in that I can tell people that, no, he didn't have Marfan syndrome or Furlick syndrome or was a hermaphrodite. That's useful. But um, I, pro I believe that from my own scholarship before that body was identified. So, hmm. But then speaking of questionable studies with cloudy methodologies, that whole, pa that whole paper is in and mind, minefield in and of itself. Oh, yeah. And incidentally, it speaks a lot more about the patronage of certain individuals in the modern day than it does about the his, the historical facts that we, we can rely on to understand certain people. But in the same way that the West drives the consumption of the from the antiquities market and thus looting, mm. the West mm. has driven this kind of fake TV scholarship in the moment fake tv scholarship we're the ones consuming it we're the ones wild for it oh the body is hers and it's amazing and look at there's there's um the body of akhenaten and the 18th dynasty bodies and da, 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 da. and so yeah there's um it, it's just interesting how much money and consumption uh and commodification have driven all of these things um this mm. is why i will not do made for tv research. I will do made for TV musing. I love doing that. I love using the medium of television to think about things and connect to stuff that I wouldn't be able to do in an academic paper because academics can be real jerks. And so <laughs> it's easier to do on TV and to come up with big ideas in that or in a trade book that can be very fun. But, um, but this kind of research, it needs to be done in a completely different way. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.